Hello there and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, and with our special guest, W. David Marks. Marks's new book, Status and Culture, How Our Desire for Social Rank Creates Taste, Identity, Art, Fashion and Constant Change, has one of those clever titles that does such a great job of synopsis you might wonder, what's the point of saying any more about it? Never mind reading it. Thing is, The Hollywood Reporter reports that this book can be found sitting atop many a creative executive's nightstand, which is to say high-status people are reading it, which in turn means that any of us middle- or low-status people with ambitions need to read it too, lest we lose status. Pretty soon Mr Marx has an influential bestseller, right up until the moment when, reading the cues, everybody scrambles for a new nightstand filler. And that, in a nutshell, is the mechanism Marx writes about, how artefacts like his book, and indeed other books, not to mention paintings and pants, movies and makeup, cars, haircuts and music, get shaped and deployed in our never-ending struggle to be thought well of by the others. For this special edition of the Culture File Weekly, we linked up with Marx from his home in Tokyo to talk about status and culture and taste and identity and art and fashion and lassie. The 1950s American television show Lassie, which I grew up watching, there's one episode that I felt really explains how status works. And in the episode, Lassie goes to a dog show, and at the dog show, she is confused for a champion dog named King's Royal Lassie, uh, who is also collie and looks identical. And suddenly, Timmy and Timmy's companion are treated like VIPs. And suddenly uh, they're treated as if they're the owner of this champion dog and they're treated much better. And Timmy goes to the dog show with a dollar to spend and he comes back with a dollar in his pocket because everything was paid for. And this kind of status reversal plot is obviously a, a mainstay in literature and television and movies. But it reveals to us that we could, you know, basically be the same person, but if everyone else thinks that we have status, our lives greatly improve. We have a better life. We are treated better. And it gives you a sense of how status works, how those benefits come from other people, and how it's based on some sort of esteem. So this champion dog was esteemed much more than the regular lassie, and because of that, Timmy and, and his companion are, are, are treated much better. So, you know, status, I think, is a very ambiguous word. When people see the word status, they often simply think it is about trying to one-up one's neighbor. I really uh, want to expand that meaning of status to more so the sociological meaning of status. That is key to what I'm trying to look at, is the effects of humans organizing themselves in hierarchies and people's lives benefiting from moving up those hierarchies and the incentive they have to do behaviors that help them move up and help them preserve the status that they have, I think explains quite a bit of our cultural behavior when you look at it uh, in in a macro sense. I, I think the word status is often misused to simply mean when one person attempts to 
demonstrate their superiority over others. And we think about the effects of status on culture going back to Thorstein Veblen, about rich people showing off that they are rich by buying expensive things. Or if you think about a middle-class person in a middle-class neighborhood where everyone drives a Toyota Camry, buying a Mercedes-Benz in order to look superior to other people. But status is much deeper than that. And what I'm trying to look at is what are all the effects of status on culture if you think about status in its broadest sense, which is that we are all inside of some sort of hierarchy that is informal uh, in our families, at school, at work. And in these groups, we have our position and we get certain benefits and we'd like to move up. At the same time, we'd like to protect our current position and not fall uh, to have low status, which would take away things from us. And these groups themselves there is a hierarchy of hierarchies in society. And so these groups also battle other groups to try to go up the hierarchy and get more of the resources of society. And so if you look at what that does for individuals and how we base our identities uh, from this process, but also how these groups battle it out and create new cultural conventions uh, based on the values that they have inside of their groups and in, in order to struggle against other groups for status, you can kind of explain most of what is going on inside of culture. But the most important lesson is simply that status is inescapable and that you know everything we do, every uh, thing we purchase has some sort of status component to it and it can most definitely be read by other people uh, for judgments of the status that we have. And the the most positive uh, side effect or you know byproduct of that big broiling uh, contest uh, are cultural artifacts themselves. How do they come to have such a big position uh, in how people relate to each other? What is very important is that culture obviously has great value to us that goes beyond status signaling. And by no means do I believe that art and culture and music and entertainment and all these things are simply only for status signaling. The thing is, however, that the creation of lots of culture comes from groups trying to create identities for themselves that are distinct, trying to one-up other groups by creating something new or devaluing the other people's possessions and culture uh, by innovating. There is this somewhat negative motivation often for the creation of culture. There is a demand for aspirational goods because people want to not only go up in status rankings, but also if their peers are all going up to join them. And so all of this has greatly contributed to a flourishing of cultural artifacts in society. And we do live in a world of incredible diversity of these artifacts. I'm quite torn by this because, you know, what's really important, if you've, every, if you've heard everything I've said so far, you could most easily believe that I think status is a wonderful thing. And status is based on inequalities. It is fundamentally hierarchical. And there are some inequalities that we're okay with, which, you know, on a sports team, but obviously things like racism and sexism are, are massive status problems that we're still dealing with. So I don't believe status is good, but I do believe that you can't ignore the role that status competition has played in the flourishing of cultural artifacts in society. Don't go wasting your emotion Lay all your 
one of the arguments I was having with myself reading your book is that every time I sort of think of some sort of transcendental value of something, I hear one of your arguments about how that has a, a status plea of, of one sort or another. What are the things that are, that are outside status that you value in art? Let's look at art, and this is what I argue in the book. There are some artists who want to be artists for the social status of being an artist. Because if you are a famed artist, it is one of the highest social positions uh, that we have. So someone like Picasso is as legendary as Einstein, and that is an incentive. But I don't believe it's an incentive for all artists. I believe that artists can have absolutely pure motives in terms of wanting to create things that changes humanity uh, for its own sake. But artists, in order to make art, have to be recognized as artists. And that itself is a status that has to be achieved within the organization and the institution of the art world. And so that alone creates effects of the kind of art that people make because you have to make art in response to previous artists to establish your own innovation and your own genius. That process doesn't necessarily mean that people are looking for normal social status in, in terms of money and wealth and, and respect from everyone, but it does shape the degree in which art moves forward and the kind of art that people make in succession of each other. So I think I think that's one where status is a certain kind of status, what I call artist status, is very important for the creation of art, but it's slightly different than than normal socioeconomic status. Uh, the other thing I would say is that, you know, companies like Hollywood Studios big book publishers, they are all creating culture uh, for an economic reason. Uh, that may not be better than, than status, but they want to collect revenue from the creation of new culture. Where I believe that interacts with status is that what they tend to do is find hot things that are uh, very popular with high-status people. So if you take fashion or you take music, you look at what high-status people are consuming. You take whatever the innovation is, and then you more or less adapt it to the previous conventions of popular culture that you know can sell. And so there's a status influence on mass culture uh, in that they're looking at high-status and trying to shape it for uh, middle-status people, because middle-status people tend to be less innovative and, and less risky in, in terms of getting interested in new art. But that process is, is not for the status, it's for the money, but they're still shaped uh, by the specific status needs of individual consumers. One of the people who kind of informs a lot of what you have to say, and I guess is, is deep in your reading, is Pierre Bourdieu, the, the French sociologist. Tell us a little bit about what his contribution is and what, what he gives to you. Pierre Bourdieu was a French sociologist who made very major contributions to our understanding of the relationship between class position and artistic appreciation. There used to be an idea of aesthetics and beauty as being a thing that was cognitive. This was Immanuel Kant's idea that uh, people contemplated beauty in a detached way in their heads, and this was a universal. And I think what Bourdieu showed is that in order to have those experiences with art and have these kind of detached experiences with avant-garde art and uh, difficult books and difficult music is that you have to be part of the privileged classes that gets access to the education that allows those artistic experiences. So they're not universal. They require some sort of pre-existing 
class position and privilege, and that people who are less privileged to that education have very uh, different expectations on art and very different appreciation of art. And so he shows that the appreciation of art in society is stratified, that it's it's not a universal uh, and, and somewhat debunks this old Kantian idea of art and aesthetics. You know, I think that is true. I think that he, by demonstrating that cultural capital and educational capital and, and, and these things are related to artistic appreciation, I think it's made us much more conscious of when we talk about pop culture, mass culture, indie culture, avant-garde culture, of uh, when we're judging things from those perspectives, what is the class and the the political implications of those judgments? One of the ideas that Bourdieu really pushes forward into our analysis of culture is this idea of habitus. And what I believe he means is something like the unconscious conventions that are inside of our head that guide our movement, our speech, and our perception of the world. And when you grow up in a certain background, so let's say an upper-class background, your perception of the world and your and culture and how you move your body and the foods you eat uh, and the taste you take from those foods, all of those things at an unconscious level are conditioned in a different way than someone who would be uh, grow up in, a, in an impoverished household. And because they're invisible and, and beyond our control, other people can look at these cues and make status judgments about our backgrounds. Uh, it's very difficult to control, and so other people use that as very effective evidence for trying to understand our background and then our current status position. alternative they can do if they're failing to move up is to move out and form their own new chain of value. Tell us a little bit about the role of subcultures. In any status group, you know, there are people at the top and there are most people in the middle and there's people at the bottom who are treated very poorly. And for many of them, it makes no sense to stay in that group. And one of the things about living in a liberal capitalist society is that we can move across countries or move cities or uh, move to different cultural zones in order to find a group that will support us and accept us as a member. And so alternative status groups are a really important uh, innovation, uh, especially in the last 100 years. And we see them in things like uh, subcultures, but also things like cults uh, or countercultural movements. And they... Psychologists have found that your local status, your status within the group that is nearest to you is the most important for your happiness. And the esteem you get from other people in your group uh, is very important. The problem in the long run is that these groups, uh, again, because they're hierarchies of hierarchies, are still low in the hierarchy of society. So in their small teddy boy group, they may be widely respected, but as a teddy boy in uh, you know, London in the 1950s, you were greatly discriminated against and people were denied jobs and other resources. And so this local versus global status 
is very important. And subcultures are a temporary solution often for people to gain new sources of status, but they're rarely uh, lifetime uh, solutions if people still want to get the best uh, resources from society. If they are fine being outside of society and living inside the subculture, it works out. But a lot of people uh, get into a new subculture and then uh, realize in that subculture they have to work hard to raise the global status of their own subculture so that more resources flow to them. One of the things that happened is that these subcultures became kind of engines for innovation high-status or higher-status individuals outside a subculture see something that they could use that has a status value for people who aren't in the subculture. So this process is probably one of the most fascinating parts of the 20th century, and it is massively influential on the shape of how culture changes. And so if you think about in the 19th century, the 18th century, where rich people really determine the direction of culture and everything trickles down from them. We now live in a world that is much more complicated where marginalized people can create new kinds of culture that then are raised up by celebrities and uh, members of the creative class and then from there go on to influence society. It's never as straightforward as simply top down anymore. But the important thing is that there is some appeal of these ideas and it doesn't always have to be the same appeal. But there is some cultural appeal, and that ultimately goes back to uh, the the status benefits that that people get out of adopting these new forms of culture. It plays out very interestingly in jazz music, which had been, uh, you know, a a, um, denied subculture and then began to be accepted by the the class of people you're talking about, the sort of creative class of upper middle class. And then that kind of feeds back into the actual aesthetics of what's being created within jazz. Jazz, as it becomes more and more accepted by a wealthy white audience, that the musicians themselves keep innovating towards more difficult forms of jazz that alienate those audiences. But those innovations are so interesting to a more creative uh, white uh, middle-class uh, enthusiast and, and, and the white hipsters that you start still getting those audiences, which pushes them to uh, innovate even further. And so th- the interplay of those audiences and the musicians was incredibly important for pushing jazz forward. At the same time, it's, it's obviously a process very fraught with the fact that uh, African-Americans at the time were marginalized and that uh, white consumers were often appropriating these these forms as well. So um, it wasn't necessarily something we should look back and say, uh, we need to have this again. But most certainly, these cultural forms were being pushed very hard by the artists themselves, because in some ways, they wanted to continue to alienate their audiences. Yeah, which is a fascinating process that the drive in the artist might be to lose an audience, that artists are somehow running away from their audience, which makes them seem sort of more um, flimsy and reactive than you'd be hoping. I, I think it is, it's inevitable in the sense that culture is formed of conventions, and conventions are uh, well-known mutual expectations about how things should go. And so if there is a widely held understanding of how music should sound, then the process of art is breaking those conventions and offering new ideas and innovations that will in the future become the new conventions. And as this process happens, human beings understand a great diversity of ways that culture can exist. But 
you always have to break the previous convention in order to find new ways of doing things. And so there has to be something that is a reactionary side to art. Art does not pop out of nowhere. Art is rarely recognized as art unless it rebels and negates the thing before it. And so it's just inherent in the whole cultural process that artists are going to react against other artists. They're going to react against the mass market. And something interesting is going to come from that. I think what's been difficult in the last 50 years is that we had this great flourishing of what I would call you know, negation in art of always doing the opposite of the, the movement before you. But it's in some ways, we've kind of circled back. And now all the major ideas are out there. And it's very difficult to figure out how to negate uh, what's out there. Uh, or what people are doing, because there there are so few conventions in art that almost everything goes. So, you know, one of the problems with 21st century culture is if you live in an incredibly tolerant society that is not bent on convention, that's saying this is right and this is wrong, then it's very difficult to figure out what to uh, react against. And I think that's what's made it more difficult to understand what the narrative of art and culture is at the moment. Tell us what you see as different about culture after the internet. You know, we've described this ornate process of of uh, status and reaction and creation and innovation, and then something you seem to suggest is happening now, which somehow steps aside from that. So the internet has really challenged all the parameters in which we were signaling status, understanding culture, forming taste, forming identity. And we don't quite know what to do with that yet. Something feels off about culture, and I believe it comes down to the fact that status value used to be created through the interactions of these groups and the struggles between these groups – And less status value is being created now, which makes everything seem less interesting at an unconscious level. And let me explain why I think that's happening. So one thing is that there used to be very few cultural items. And so everything that was in front of you in some ways had a meaning because there were very few things and we could keep track of those meanings. On the internet, everything is infinite. And this long tail of content that exists means that you can choose from a wide variety of things to listen to and things to wear and things to read. But it's not very clear that other people will know what those things are or be able to read them as status signals. And maybe we don't necessarily want them to be status signals, but it still means that we choose all this culture that no one will understand and we can't talk to anybody about. And so what it's done is actually pushed us back to these this mainstream culture and the head because we know that if we listen to the new Drake album or the new Beyonce album, it's very likely that someone else will have heard that and we can have a conversation and they'll know something about us and our identity. The other problem is that fashion cycles used to move slowly enough that certain groups would be able to adopt a new style. It would become associated with them. They could authentically make it part of their lives. Now fashion moves so fast It could literally be known by people outside of your group within an hour. And the fact that other people and outsiders can adopt the same things weakens those social meanings. It weakens the status value as there's fewer associations with wealthy or or high status people. And it actually makes people be a little less willing to adopt new uh, 
styles because they can't guarantee that it will be dis distinctive and to them themselves. So then we also add on this idea of omnivore culture, which is we consume high and low. It's somewhat distasteful to have distaste towards things now. And so that means that the groups we used to use to tell us uh, this is good and this is bad have somewhat stepped back from that role. Everything is great now. Uh, but that means there's very few hard lines between this is our culture and this is not our culture. And those groups were creating a lot of status value for the difficult culture that they uh, were interested in by saying this is ours and the mainstream doesn't understand it, but we're going to fight for it and we're going to hate uh, superhero movies or big blockbusters because that's not art and we're going to focus on art. The internet in general is just pushing uh, us towards this strange monoculture of abundance where there's almost everything in the world and yet we're aggregating towards certain choices because there's too much elsewhere and these things don't have that much social value. So instead, we focus on the big blockbusters that can still be used in social communication with other people. As we don't have this, um, these tokens that we can use in this status battle, then we revert to pure economic value. Economic capital has a role that it never used to. The symbolic order having fallen away, we get back to filthy lucre. That's right. So in the past, status signaling went from a spectrum of economic to cultural capital. And if you think about a very impoverished country, if somebody has a lot of money, if the dictator in the country is you know, embezzling all the money and has all the money, in order to show a higher status position, all they have to do is spend that money because people don't have that money. And so in highly stratified societies, economic capital is all you need to create status distinction. In a more equitable, more layered and nuanced society like uh, the US or the UK or Japan where you have an upper middle class and a middle class – you'll get groups who are battling for status without economic capital because they may not have as much, but they're using symbolic capital. They're using culture as a way to make these distinctions to say, I have better taste than you do. You know, if you look at avant-garde art, this is a way to signal status without any money at all. It's simply all about culture. And the problem at the moment is that culture is based off information and on the internet, information is so free that it's very much damaging cultural capital as a form that we can signal status with. And so it's pushing us back to economic capital as the most effective tool for status signaling, even in places uh, that in the past had culture as, as a alternative. And so today, if you want to signal your status, it's very difficult to do that by listening to a band uh, that m many people may not know about or wearing a fashion brand people may not know about. It may come down to ultimately just how much money you spend, which, you know, the problem there is that culture, when it is based on conspicuous consumption, is quite boring because the thing about conspicuous consumption is if you own a giant house, even a three-year-old who doesn't know anything about the world and economics and class and status will still know that this person must be very important for having a giant house. And so these symbols are very simplistic and boring. What is really important in the cultural ecosystem is we have some sort of mechanism to promote complex culture and the creation of complex culture and the valuation of it. And there really isn't a great mechanism for rewarding that kind of work the way there was 100 years ago. 100 years ago, we could rely on status signaling to promote this kind of difficult culture. And now we can't. So we have to, as a culture, decide 
how are we going to reward and promote people who make difficult art? And difficult art isn't for everybody, and we don't have to make people feel bad if they don't understand the difficult art, but being innovative and making things of great symbolic complexity ends up refreshing the entire cultural ecosystem for everybody. And it's very important that there continues to be a way to promote and celebrate that kind of art. And, and what is that way? When people are experts in manipulating symbols and creating innovative new forms of art from that, that they, they need to be recognized. And so, you know, the first thing it could start is literally just critics going back to the mandate they had not so long ago, which is to find the most innovative things in the market and to reward them instead of using all their time and attention to simply uh, write about and promote slightly interesting things in mass culture. <laughs> that sounds like a very, a very good plan, a very good plan. You've been listening to a special edition of the Culture File Weekly with W. David Marks, and his new book is called Status and Culture, How Our Desire for Social Rank Creates Taste, Identity, Art, Fashion and Constant Change. And that brings to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more productive vanity next week. Till then, bye now.